Lord, it's with great care that we come to your word this morning. And we simply pray with the words of the psalmist that you will open the eyes of our understanding that we might behold wondrous things from your holy word. And so, Lord, as we come to this passage this morning, our prayer is, Lord, that you will speak to us, you will encourage us, you will help us to be the people that you want us to be, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In the early 1800s, there was a great English actor by the name of William McCready, and he was once approached by an eminent preacher, and the preacher asked him for some advice. He said, I would wish you would explain to me something. And so the actor said to him, well, what is it? I don't know that I can explain anything to a preacher. Well, what is the reason for the difference between you and me? You are appearing before large crowds every other night, and uh, you're simply telling stories that are not true. You're simply acting out a fictitious story. And yet, on the other hand, I am preaching the essential and unchangeable truth of God's Word, and I'm not getting any crowds at all. McCready's answer was this, this is quite simple. I can tell you the difference between us. I present my fiction as though it were truth, and you present your truth as though it were fiction. In other words, his life and ministry was devoid of that passion, that zeal that one would come to expect of a person who really proclaimed the truth of what he believed. You know, when we come to the life of the Apostle Paul, however, in these few short verses that we have before us this morning, we get a very different kind of impression. Paul could never be accused of being anything less than passionate about God's call on his life and the ministry in which he was engaged. He was passionate about the message that he proclaimed. There was no sense of fiction about what he was declaring to be the Word of God. It was truth in all its fullness, and it gripped every aspect of his ministry. It gripped every aspect of his life as he sought to bring people to an understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He really believed it, and he lived it out as a reality in his own life and in the lives of others. And as he says here, after his earlier greeting to the church, he is constantly thanking God for their faith, which was being proclaimed all around the world. Not only that, we see Paul also praying here in this passage uh, as he calls upon God as his witness, and he says he is praying that somehow that God would open up a way for him to visit these believers in Rome. His desire, he tells us in verses 11 and 12, was that he might have the opportunity to visit them and to impart some spiritual gift, some spiritual grace, that which would be beneficial to them. In other words, he wanted to, to do it in order that they might be strengthened in their walk with God. They might be growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. But not only that, he was also eager, he tells us here, he was literally chafing at the bit, I guess a little bit like a racehorse that's in the stall waiting for the starter's gun to go off. He was eager to preach the gospel in Rome as well. He still wanted others to experience the transforming power of the gospel and have the opportunity to hear and respond to the claims of Christ. 
As an aside too, you will notice that for Paul, this was not just a one-way street. He recognized the value of mutual encouragement when it came to believers in Christ. He understood that they could contribute to his own walk with God by encouraging him as well. And wouldn't it be great if we all took to heart Paul's attitude and saw the importance of mutual encouragement as believers in Christ? After all, isn't that what the writer to the Hebrews was on about? When he spoke in Hebrews 10.25 and he said, let's not neglect the meeting of ourselves together as some do, but to encourage one another even the more as we see God's great day of redemption coming. Paul wanted to go and preach the gospel in Rome. He wanted others to experience the transforming power of the gospel, to hear and have the opportunity of responding to the claims of Christ on their lives. Wouldn't it be great if we could do the same within the community that God has placed us? Paul was a person who had a very balanced view of ministry. Yes, preaching the gospel was important, but so was building people up, continuing to grow himself in his walk with God, for that is the very essence of discipleship, is it not? And foundational to all of this was that sense of passion, that zeal, that commitment to the task that God had given him to do. Remember when Paul wrote this epistle, he'd probably been a believer and in ministry for perhaps some 30 years. And if anyone had had an excuse to lose some of his passion or zeal, considering some of the things that we've seen him go through as we've been going through the book of Acts, perhaps Paul was one. And yet there is no loss of passion, there is no loss of any sense of enthusiasm for serving the Lord along the way. And yet, as one commentator puts it, there was no harried pastor who had been more pressed for time than Paul. No busy executive ever carried a greater burden of responsibility than Paul. Yes, he lived and ministered under the constant daily pressure, he tells us in 2 Corinthians 11, for his concern for the churches. And yet here he is still wanting to press on, as it were, to new frontiers, wanting not only to visit and minister to these believers in Rome, but as we read in chapter 15 of this epistle, to also go on to Spain and there proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus. He was wanting to go and visit these minister, be believers in Rome. We read in chapter 15 because he wanted to impart something that would be beneficial to them in terms of their walk with God. So we asked the question this morning, what keeps a person so passionate, so full of zeal and enthusiasm in the way that we see demonstrated in the life of the Apostle Paul? We've seen so much of that passion and commitment as we've been working our way through the book of Acts over these past weeks. And so we ask ourselves the question, what is it that will keep me keeping on, keeping on when it comes to ministry and service for Christ? Well, I think this passage of Scripture actually gives us some very good insights, some underlying principles or motivations, if you like, that kept Paul persevering in ministry with such a zeal and dedication that perhaps few of us have seen or even experienced in our lives. 
And these principles, I suggest, can do the same for you as they can do for me if we feel our enthusiasm for serving the Lord is waning. And so we need to consider what they might be this morning. And the very first principle then that comes with maintaining a passion and serving God, I would suggest comes from simply resting in God's sovereignty. The reason I say that, because as Paul shares in verse 10, how he prays constantly that at last he might succeed in coming to them, that God would somehow open up a way for him to travel to Rome. He undergirds that longing by reference to a fact that this might be accomplished somehow by God's will. Paul was very open to the possibility of visiting Rome. Indeed, he was anxious to do so. He understood, however, that God's will needed to be paramount despite any longing that he might have in the natural to visit Rome. We can understand how Paul might have had such a longing and an intensity of wanting to go there because this was a place that the scripture says whose faith was being spoken about all around the then known world. They may not have had the modern technology that we have in terms of communication, but the message still got around fairly effectively. And Paul had come to know that this was a church where God was doing a great work. People were being blessed. People were coming to know Christ. And their faith was such that it was being talked about in the Christian circles in which he moved. God was doing such a great work in people's lives that Paul was genuinely excited about what God was doing in these people's lives. He could be thankful even though he had no direct involvement in the founding of the church. How the church came to be, we are not told. We do know from Paul's personal greetings at the end of the uh, chapter 16 that a number of Paul's co-workers, people like Aquila and Priscilla, were actually engaged in ministry there. And so perhaps they had had something to do with its formation. But I like to think, however, that the birth of the church in Rome was directly linked to those great events on the day of Pentecost when God poured out his spirit in a new way and people from all around the empire began to hear the gospel preached in their own native dialect. And of all the people that are listed in Acts chapter 2 there, there is one little phrase at the end of verse 10 that simply says this, and visitors from Rome. Could it be that the church at Rome had been born out of the faithful witness of those who had been converted on the day of Pentecost, those who had responded to the gospel message that the Apostle Peter had uh, preached? But whatever its origins, however, it was a church whose reputation had spread far and wide. And Paul, as passionate and committed to the gospel as he was, wanted to go there and do what he could to help out. But only if it was in God's will. He understood that very important principle that God is free to move his chess pieces around his divine chessboard, as it were, according to his divine purposes. And when he does that, there is no checkmate as far as his servants are concerned. Paul had learned through his long years of ministry that God can be absolutely trusted 
And should he choose to say no to any of our desires or our human inclinations, as honourable as they might be, as God-glorifying that we might think they might be, it was okay by him because he knew that God knew what he was doing. Remember over in Acts chapter 16, as we were going through the book of Acts, Paul was travelling during his second missionary journey and in the region of Phrygia and Galatia, and he was doing that because the Holy Spirit had said to them they were not to minister in the area of the province of Asia. And so he and his companions then decided to travel north to Bithynia, near around the Black Sea. And again, the Holy Spirit did not allow them to do so. And so they moved over to the coast of Troas. And you remember that Paul received on that occasion that vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. And concluding that that was what Paul, God's call to him was, that's what he did. No questioning, no arguing with God that Bithynia was a better place to go strategically. He was simply submissive to the will of God. He was prepared to rest in God's sovereignty even though he was not told the reason God had said no. And even over in Acts 20, we see another example of Paul doing the same. As he met and shared with those Ephesian elders for the last time in the city of Miletus, we read in verse 22 following his own testimony. He said, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not count my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry I have received from the Lord Jesus. That, I suggest, is the testimony of a man resting in God's sovereignty a person so committed to the will of God that even when warned by the prophet Agabus of what awaited him in Jerusalem, he was still not be persuaded from following after God's will for his life. God was sovereignly in control of his circumstances. Yes, his natural desire was to minister in Rome, to head there on his way to Spain. If you go over to Romans 15, he tells us that it was something that he had wanted to do for many years. And he knew that if he could get to Rome, it would not only be beneficial for the church, but he too would be in benefit from the encouragement that came from what God was doing in their lives. There was absolutely nothing wrong with Paul desiring to do this. It was a noble desire, but as he says here, only if it was according to God's will. Paul may never have got to Spain, we're not told. Paul certainly never got to Rome in the way that he desired or intended. He ended up there as a prisoner bound in chains. And we discover from the latter chapters of Acts uh, that did not stop him from continuing to do what God had called him to do. In fact, we read in Acts 27 how for two years while he was there during his first imprisonment, he welcomed all who came to him and boldly proclaimed the gospel to all who would listen. Paul's whole life was a testimony to his willingness not only to administer according to the will of God but to do so whatever his personal inclinations or circumstances might have been because he rested in God's sovereignty. He recognised that he could keep on going with zeal and enthusiasm 
knowing that God had everything under control and was indeed doing all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, as he writes later on in Romans chapter 8. And so the question we ask ourselves this morning, the question I ask you, are you struggling to maintain your passion, your zeal for serving the Lord? Does it all seem too hard? God doesn't seem to be coming through in the way that you would desire in life and ministry. Sometimes we find ourselves in those sorts of situations and the temptation is to try and manipulate our circumstances or even to manipulate God to do what we want him to do. And when he doesn't respond in the way that we would like, our sense of enthusiasm, our sense of zeal for serving the Lord quickly wanes. And we end up as pew warmers rather than genuine ambassadors for Christ. We can become a little bit like those branches that Jesus spoke about in John chapter 15 who don't bear fruit, good for nothing, only fit to be thrown out on the rubbish tip and to be burned up. Resting in God's sovereignty when it comes to our circumstances and service for the Lord, however, is the thing that will help us to maintain our passion for serving the Lord. It reminds us that God knows exactly what he is doing. He is never taken by surprise and he will do what is absolutely right for us according to his divine purpose, no matter what might happen to us, no matter what circumstances in which we find ourselves. He is well able to use us just as greatly as he might, we might envisage if we were in some sort of other situation that was conducive or more desirous for us. But that leads me to the second thing that I wanted to share here this morning from this passage. Maintaining a passion for mission, mission ministry also involves recognising our divine obligation. Verses 14 and 15, we read that Paul refers to himself as being bound or under obligation to both the Greeks and the barbarians, to the Greeks or the non-Greeks, both to the wise and the unwise. In other words, he was a man who was under obligation to those who are educated or uneducated. He was under obligation to the sophisticated and the simple. He was under obligation to the privileged and the underprivileged. It didn't matter who you were there had been placed upon his life that divine compulsion to preach the gospel, and that included those who were in Rome. Paul understood that the gospel was to be proclaimed freely to all with whom he came in contact in his life and ministry. There was no trying to confine the gospel to his comfort zone. Paul was uh, an intellectual we would say he was university educated, but there was no trying to confine that to this particular demographic of people. The gospel was for all people. And as we made the point a few weeks ago, Paul would often start at where people were at and lead them to the cross, no matter who they were or what their background was. And this obligation was something he could not escape. It was a calling that God had given all of those years earlier when he met Jesus in a very dramatic way on the road to Damascus. You remember on that occasion after he'd gone into the city blind from the light that had struck him on the road, 
The Lord appeared to Ananias in a vision and told him, I want you to go to a street called Straight. I want you to go to the house of Judas and there you will find Paul praying. And God then went on to say to Ananias amongst another of things, he said, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name to the Gentiles and to kings and the children of Israel and I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And from that moment on, when Ananias went to visit him and laid his hands on him that he might receive his sight, this divine obligation took hold of Paul's life. It was one of the things that kept him going in the good times and in the bad. And even writing to the Corinthian believers, for example, in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 16 and 17, he says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, for if I do this of my own free will, I have reward. But if not of my will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. In other words, Paul was saying that this was an inescapable calling upon his life. Yes, when he got involved in ministry freely and voluntarily, there was reward for him, there was blessing that came. But even when he ministered the gospel, when he didn't feel like it, well, he still had to minister simply because this was the inescapable call of God upon his life. He understood very clearly that he was not his own. He was not his own master. He was not the master of his own destiny. He'd been bought with a price. And that price was the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. And therefore it was incumbent upon him to glorify God with the totality of his being and to share the same good news that had seen him become a new creation in Christ. He knew that when God placed his hand upon his life, that was it. He had no other choice but to follow the Lord in simple obedience and trust. And as he reminds us here, it was this understanding of his calling that permeated his whole life and ministry so that even when he was arrested and taken before Felix, the governor in Acts 22, as we saw last week, his own testimony as he recounts Ananias' words with great clarity was this. God had said to him, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from heaven, for you will be a witness to him, to everyone of what you have seen and heard. You remember in Mark chapter 5, how Jesus and his disciples got into a boat and travelled to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the regions of the Gezerines or the Gadarenes. And when they had landed there, they were confronted by that demon-possessed man who used to spend his time wandering around the graveyard naked, crying out in a loud voice, cutting himself with stones. Whenever somebody tried to subdue him, he simply broke the chains and carried on before. But his encounter with Jesus changed all that. Jesus cast those demons from his body. They went into that herd of swine and they were drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And when the people came out to see what had happened, what did they find? I found that man clothed and sitting there in his right mind. And when Jesus and his disciples were about to get back in the boat to go back to the other side, 
that man wanted to follow them. He wanted to get in the boat and follow Jesus. And Jesus said, no. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy upon you. And isn't that the same essence of the obligation that God has placed upon us as his children? We've been entrusted, we are told in 2 Corinthians 5, with the message of reconciliation. God makes his appeal to the world through us. And this is just as much an inescapable calling that God places upon our lives as he placed on the life of the Apostle Paul. Whether I'm an office worker or a teacher, whether I work on the tools all day, whether I'm a mum serving the Lord in the home or a nurse working in a hospital or an aged care setting, whether I'm retired or I'm otherwise gainfully employed, Christ expects us to be faithful in the place that he has put us. And in the words of 1 Peter 3.15, to be those who are always willing to give an answer to everyone who asks us the reason for the hope that we have in Christ and to do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, to borrow the words of Jesus in Mark 5, to go home to our friends and to tell them how much the Lord has done for us and how he has had mercy upon us. Notice, however, before we move on, that this sense of divine obligation wasn't something that Paul interpreted as God being harsh or unfair, imposing upon himself a burden he didn't want to bear. Yes, he knew that one day he would have to give an account of his stewardship to God, but he also reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5 that the very thing that undermined or undergirded his desire and his obligation to preach the gospel was the fact that Christ's love was the thing that compelled him. It was the thing that controlled his whole life and ministry. And the very fact that we've come to experience God's love as it's expressed on the cross of Calvary, where he paid the penalty for our sins, then that ought to be motivation enough to keep on keeping on in serving the Lord. How could Paul take a step back from fulfilling this obligation when God had done so much for him in Christ? And how can we not want to share all that God has done for us as well. Yes, maintaining our passion for ministry, our passion for serving the Lord uh, comes from resting in God's sovereignty. It comes from recognising the obligation that we have. But it also, as we come to our final point, involves having confidence in the power of the gospel. What does Paul say in verses 16 and 17? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the righteous or the just shall live by faith. Paul understood very clearly in fact, it's the basis of his teaching throughout the whole epistle to the Romans. He understood that the gospel, the good news that he proclaimed, is a life-giving, energising and transforming message that brought about the salvation of all of those who responded in faith and repentance. 
it was of nothing to be ashamed. He could have confidence in it. He could rejoice in the fact that it was God who did the work in transforming people's lives. It was not something that depended upon him. Yes, as Jesus reminds us in the parable of the soils, the gospel message may fall upon hard ground. It may fall upon rocky or thorny soil. That is inevitable. But when it takes root by faith in good soil in the hearts and minds of those who receive it as the Holy Spirit brings conviction concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, when it does that, it bears much fruit. That person experiences a righteousness that comes by faith whereby we are declared righteous in God's sight. We have a right standing with the God who created us for himself. Yes, of necessity, we discover as we read further on this epistle that the gospel must first address our standing before God and remind us that we are sinners in God's sight, that there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves right with God. And because the gospel proclaims this, it can be an unattractive, intimidating or even offensive message to the unbeliever because it is a message that reminds us that we are sinners, it exposes our sin. It reminds us that left to our own devices, we are subject to the judgment of God and destined for an eternity without Christ. The natural person, the person outside of Christ doesn't want to hear such a message and they will often react negatively and sometimes strongly and often Christians can be the focus of that reaction. When that happens, we can do one of two things. We can be tempted to water down the message so that it doesn't offend anybody. And there is so much of that is happening within the so-called evangelical church today. So much of what passes as gospel preaching is nothing more than popular psychology, a health and a wealth approach to life that may leave people feeling good about themselves for a little while. But in the end, it leaves them sliding down the slippery slope to an eternity without Christ. And of those who preach such a gospel, which is really no gospel at all, Paul says in Galatians, of them, Paul says, let them be accursed. Such a person is under the judgment of God. But the second thing we can be tempted to do, however, when faced with opposition to the gospel message is simply to give up to lose our passion, our zeal for serving Christ because it seems too hard. People don't want to hear. And we operate on the basis as if it somehow depends upon me and not upon God. The disciples of Jesus experienced that a little bit, didn't they? You remember that occasion when Jesus was approached by the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19 and he came to Jesus and he said, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As far as these disciples were concerned, he was an ideal candidate for the kingdom of God. And yet as we read through that passage, we read that he went away sad because he was not prepared to do what he was asked of by Jesus. He was not prepared to submit to Christ's authority in his life. And when the disciples saw this, they were astonished. They said to Jesus, who then can be saved? And Jesus said to them, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. 
And that is essentially what the Paul is trying to impress upon his readers as he declares that he is not ashamed of the gospel. He rejoices in it. He has confidence in it because it is the power of God to the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Gentile. Yes, the gospel does remind us of our sinfulness. It does confront us with the fact that we can do nothing of ourselves to make us right with God. But more than that, in the gospel that we are reminded that though our righteous deeds are nothing more than filthy rags in God's sight, when we respond by repentance and faith to the gospel message, when we place our faith and trust in Christ, we are justified, we are declared righteous in God's sight. God clothes us with the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks upon us, he does not see us in our sinfulness, but he sees us clothed in the very righteousness of his Son. That is the righteousness that comes from God, that comes to everyone who believes. We have now a right standing with God, not because of anything we have done, but because of all that God has done for us in Christ. You know, in times gone by, whenever a criminal was executed for his or her crimes in the public square of a town in England, very often after the execution was carried out, a sign would be put up with words like this. This morning at 6am, Thomas Brown was justified. In other words, the just requirements of the law had been fulfilled and the law of the land had no more claim upon that person. Similarly, when it comes to our salvation, having come to faith in Christ, God's law that condemns us as sinners has no more claim upon us. We are justified, we are declared righteous because the just requirements of God's law have been fulfilled, not by us, but by the person of God's Son who became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. No wonder Paul concludes this section with the statement, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. It was a faith from faith, from faith for faith. It was a statement of faith from start to finish. That right standing with God is that which is appropriated by faith at the very beginning of our Christian life to the very end until that time we stand before God complete in his presence. How was Paul able to maintain his passion for ministry, his service for the Lord over those many years? A passion that enabled him to keep on keeping on in life and ministry. He understood and lived out his life resting in God's sovereign control. He never reneged from fulfilling the gospel obligation that God had placed upon his life. And he never lost sight of the awesome power of the gospel to transform lives. You know, when we grasp these truths, when the wonder of our salvation grips us and becomes such an intrinsic part of our lives so that it's just like the air that we breathe, then what was true for Paul can be true for us as well. 
And scripture would encourage us in the words of Galatians 6, 9, in these terms this morning. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word which speaks to our hearts. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who takes the word and applies it to our lives, reveals the things of Christ to us and encourages us as the one who comes alongside to fulfil your calling upon our lives. Lord, we pray that you will help us to be the people that you have called us to be, a people on mission, a people on fire with the gospel. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.